uh, this evening. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 5. Again, two stories, pretty short, lots happening. Feel free to follow along up there or in your Bible as I read along. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and were and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst for Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We've seen extraordinary things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Great Father, we thank you for your word and the chance uh, to open it and study it tonight. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you be kind uh, to show us Jesus. Sharpen our minds and soften our hearts. Uh, be kind, Lord, to uh, use my, my weakness and uh, even my weariness uh, to make clear the good news. And be kind to press the good news into our hearts, we ask, Lord Jesus. Amen. There's a... Uh, Oft-told story, perhaps apocryphal, no one's yet disproven it, but I'm not sure it's proven either. It doesn't really matter if it's true in this case. Uh, about Thomas Edison, that guy who pretty much invented everything except for like the land we live on, but pretty much everything else. In the, in the most recent Samsung phone, he never would have built something that failed so drastically. Um, anyway, uh, there's a story of um, him building this crazy contraption called the light bulb. And uh, how it took a whole team of men 24 hours uh, to put just one together. And uh, as they were finishing, uh, near finishing the, with the final product, they were, they were about ready to patent their design. Uh, they had spent 24 hours on this one bulb. Uh, they hand, he handed it over to a young boy and, uh, and had it sent upstairs for testing. And uh, you can imagine being a young boy in a situation, at least I can. It's the kind of thing my grandfather would have done to me. This is very important. Don't drop it. I'll kill you. And then you walk up the stairs trembling and afraid. And, of course, he dropped it. So, uh, back to work. Entire team of 24 men making another light bulb for 24 hours, 24 more hours. And uh, when they were done, Edison once again gave the light bulb to the young boy to carry upstairs. That's forgiveness. 
It also might not be a true story. But in this case, I'm not sure it matters. That's a great picture of forgiveness. And, and part of us says, man, that's really cool. That's great. And at least someone here is probably saying, man, that's a little crazy, a little, a little eccentric. And I'm pretty sure at least one of those 24 men was irate and probably pulled the kid aside and said, you drop this, I'm going to kill you. Um, but I, I think the way we respond to that is really interesting. You know, it, it's Edison's prerogative to do that. It's his shop, it's his invention, it's his employees. He has the authority to forgive if he wants. He has uh, the right to give this kid a second chance if he's audacious enough to do so. Um, I think we think we like forgiveness in second chance stories. We're supposedly a second chance nation. We supposedly relish forgiveness and second chances. But I think we have an uneasy relationship with forgiveness and second chances. Uh, forgiveness is often controversial, uh, like tonight's stories. We'll see it. Uh, because we want to forgive people, but we also want to make sure that they've paid enough. Because forgiveness involves cost. Have they actually paid enough? Have they suffered enough? And that actually makes you wonder if people really understand what forgiveness is all about anyway. Uh, it's further complicated by the fact that we have this sort of maximum in our head, and not everyone has this, but being historically influenced by Christianity, we have this sort of idea of what forgiveness looks like, and it looks something like, hate the sin but love the sinner. It's a pretty common phrase that you hear, hate the sin but love the sinner. But often, if we were telling the truth, many of us actually love the sin and hate the sinner. It's true in our culture. It's actually quite possible, I would even argue likely, that many times we love the sin that we hate the sinner for. There's a particular sinner doing something and we despise them, and it's often the case that we despise them because we're guilty of the same kind of thing. See all exhibits of pride, for instance. Um, I think even more profound and more common, though, this is the last thing, is that instead of hating the sin or loving the sin, hating the sinner or loving the sinner, most of the times, we're just indifferent. We just don't care very much. I think most of the time, we just don't care. We have this blasé sort of tolerance that uh, forgives everything because we just don't really care very much. And I want us to see tonight, I think Luke wants us to see tonight, that Jesus really cares both about sin and about sinners. He cares about them a lot, and he cares about them very differently than we do. And uh, when, I think when we, we understand that, and when we are uh, united to Jesus, when we're trusting in him and walking with him, what that means is Jesus will change our relationship, both with sin and with society. And I use the word society, which sounds very fancy, and that just means the people around you. That uh, a relationship with Jesus will change your relationship with sin and with the people around you. So these two stories, really interesting, if you look at them very carefully, they're basically different stories, different crowds, same structure. This is what happens every time. Jesus is there and he sees someone. And then Jesus says something. And then there's this huge controversy. And then Jesus answers it and we move on. That's the basic structure of both these stories. Actually, all those words are actually in there. That's how Luke's telling these stories. And uh, two really powerful ideas emerge from these two stories. 
It's the authority of Jesus to forgive sins and the audacity to do so. That he has the authority to forgive sins and the audacity to do so. So let's pick up in, uh, in verse 17. Jesus is in a house teaching. And uh, Luke tells us, and Mark tells us as well, that Jesus is so popular at the time that the house is packed. And there's a special guest there on this particular day. The religious professionals have shown up, all the scribes and Pharisees and teachers. And it's not really quite clear from the text whether they're there as fans or critics yet. But they're there. They're representing. And uh, the house is so packed that we find out in verse uh, 19 and so on that uh, these four or five men come... They're seeking to bring a friend in need to Jesus, and they can't get in. Mark tells us the house is so packed, there's no room even at the door. So, that's Mark, that's Luke. But anyway, same story. And um, so they decide to make a way through the roof. That's called antisocial behavior, tearing someone's roof off. Um, But let's put ourselves on the inside. Uh, On the inside, imagine you're in there. You're listening to Jesus. He's teaching. He's a good teacher. Everyone's keen because they're, he's so exciting and compelling and charismatic. You want to be there. You're, you're locked in on Jesus, what he's saying, and you hear someone clamoring on the roof. That's strange. A little distracting. And then you hear, like, pounding and scraping. And then after a while, like, dust begins to fall into his hair. And then plaster begins to fall on your head. And then there's a hole in the roof. And then the hole gets bigger and bigger, and there's sunlight streaming through as plaster's falling down. We're talking about a hole that's at, like, five feet wide, enough to lower a cot down. And this man is lowered before you. It's a small town, so you probably know the guy. Paralyzed, and you see that, oh, it's Joe, the paralytic. <laughs> That's what Luke calls him. That's what he, that was his nickname, Joe the paralytic. And, uh, and you see this guy, and uh, you know, he's probably not used to being the center of attention. There he is, eyes as big as saucers. But, but Jesus, Luke tells us, sees something else. Of course, he knows all this is going on. But the text tells us that when Jesus sees this, he sees their faith. See that up there? That Jesus sees their faith. These men are so eager to get to Jesus, they tear the roof off the house. And uh, one commentator put it this way, Faith lives under one great compulsion, a determination to get into the presence of Jesus. Faith has one great compulsion, to get a determination to get into the presence of Jesus. And you see that with these men. They will not be stopped. And, uh, and, and they press in. And I would just encourage you, if you consider yourself a Christian, to try that definition on. Not just, I believe some things about Jesus, but if you truly trust Him, believe in Him, are you determined to be in His presence? To do what needs to be done, to be with Him and near Him. And uh, when Jesus sees this man, he, he says to him, Man, your sins are forgiven. You see that? Anybody find that strange? Show of hands. Find that strange? Wow, you guys read the same text. All right, let me review. A, a guy who's paralyzed has been dropped through a hole that was just knocked into a roof. He's dropped in front of you. He's paralyzed, okay? You know what paralyzed is? And Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven. Do any of you find that strange? Okay, I'm slowly persuading you. Okay, that's good. Um, you know, is this an embarrassing misdiagnosis? 
Jesus, doctor of the soul, did you just miss this one a little bit? Or is he being cruel? It's a paralyzed man in a crowd full of people. And Jesus is saying, essentially, Hi there, sinner. My pleasure to forgive you today. There's a woman I read about a couple months ago named Joy Milne. She was in this conversation with a bunch of doctors at her local hospital. And uh, she made this outrageous claim that some of them heard that she could smell Parkinson's. That she could smell the disease. And so they decided to have her tested. And so what they did was they, they had a little study. Twelve people. Six with Parkinson's. Six without. They all wore the same exact t-shirt for a day. Took them off. Put them in bags. Handed to her separately. She gave them the sniff test. Handed them back and said... Seven people have Parkinson's. And they're like, wow. She got six right who did, and one false positive. But she was adamant. She's like, that person has Parkinson's. And they're like, she hasn't definitely tested positive for Parkinson's. But they were amazed. They were amazed. She got all six right. And then eight months later, the person who didn't have Parkinson's was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Crazy, right? So, um, Joy Milne does not have Parkinson's. But her husband did. For a really long time. And she became so familiar with the disease by the smell it gave off that no one else can pick up. That she can smell Parkinson's. The the ramifications for research and early identification here are, are profound and doctors are ecstatic about this because it's a really hard thing to diagnose. Right now, she's better at diagnosing Parkinson's than anything that we have in the world. Really, it's amazing, isn't it? But think about how she came to this. She's able to see and to know what's there better than anyone else, not because she has it, but because someone she loved did. That's how she became familiar with it. And that's pretty much the picture we have of Jesus here. Jesus is not a sinner. Never sinned. But he is so thoroughly familiar with sin and all its manifestation among all the people that he loves that he diagnoses it, that he sees it. He knows its presence. He knows its destructive qualities. And so he's able to see this man who we all consider harmless and to say, I know what's there. I know what's really going on in that heart of yours. Jesus isn't being cruel. He's caring. He's, he showed it before, last account, in the way he cared for a leper, healing him, but doing it personally with touch, not required, superfluous, going above and beyond, almost unprofessional. <laughs> he cares a lot. Um, but he knows what's going on. He's diagnosing here a graver condition. And Jesus is saying, in effect, to this man and to all of us that are listening, listen, you have a bigger problem than you think, buddy. All of us do. It's bigger than the pressing need you think you have to walk again. I know that you can't walk or go to the bathroom by yourself or feed yourself, that you can't get married or have children. You can't work or go to the temple or synagogue. I can imagine what it's like to be completely dependent all your life long on someone else. Not your biggest problem, friend. Your biggest problem is your heart, that you're a sinner. And the good news is that I'm here to forgive you. That's what Jesus is doing. 
Now, the people in the room are indignant. The religious leaders are indignant in verse 21. And they're indignant for a different reason than we are. I'll talk about this in a moment. They're indignant because they're asking in verse 21, Hey, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, you're basically claiming that you can do something only God can do. You're usurping his prerogative. You're saying you're God. And uh, to illustrate what this looks like, it would be like this. That I am meeting with you on a one-on-one. And uh, and we get to talking. And I have to to say, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, Madison. I need to tell you this. Your roommates have been talking about you behind your back. Really, what have they been saying? Well, they've been saying you're uncharitable, that you're a gossip, that you don't hold up your end in the house. And, uh, and those are the nice things. Um, and it's worse. And you start to get angry. And I say, but it's okay. It's all right, Madison. Don't worry about it. Because I forgave them. I forgave them for you. And you're like, what? That's exactly what's going on here. Like, the, the, the religious leaders are like, who gives you the right to forgive what only God can forgive? And, and Jesus is basically claiming the, that he's divine and has the authority to forgive sins. Now, we're indignant for a different reason. And maybe you don't look very indignant. But, you know, I, I think if I got you just right, then in the right situation, you would be angry. Here's a guy, dropped down in front of everyone, came for healing, and Jesus says, Sinner. And uh, we live in a culture that doesn't take sin very seriously. It has to be pretty monstrous and terrible. And here's a paralytic, and we're thinking, like, pretty hard for you to do anything monstrous and terrible. Let's see, my big pet sins that we really still hate in our culture. Let's see, murder, adultery, child molestation. I guess you're clear. Okay, then. On you go. Not such a bad guy after all. And, and, and Jesus says, you, your sin is your biggest problem. And uh, we have a deep-rooted belief culturally that everyone's good and sin's not that big a deal and God doesn't really care. And Jesus here is saying, no, no, we're all afflicted and it's a huge deal and we need to take sin seriously. And Jesus does. He takes sin seriously. He not only forgives it, but we really see how serious it is because Jesus is willing to pay the cost to forgive it. That's not clear in this text, but it will become clearer in Luke that any forgiveness involves a cost. Someone has to pay. And Jesus is willing to do that. And the ultimate payment looks like a cross. That we get freedom in life because he's willing to take the equivalent of imprisonment and death for our sake. So, our indignation, their indignation, Jesus answers both in verse 24. He's saying, hey, you got questions about my authority to forgive sins? Okay. How about this? I'll prove it. That you may know, verse 24, that the Son of Man, that's his title for himself... He doesn't have a cape, just a title. Um, That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What we see here is Jesus is willing to offer them proof. You don't believe? Okay. How about I put myself to the test for your sake? I want you to actually believe I have the authority to forgive sins, so I'll prove it. Hey guys, which is easier for me to say? I forgive sins or to tell this dude right here who's never walked in his life to get up and walk? Well, they're both impossible, right? You can't do either one. You, you, you don't have the divine prerogative to forgive sins. And you don't have the ability to uh, make people walk who've never walked before. It's easier to say which one. Your sins are forgiven. Because no one can see it. If I say, rise up and walk, 
You just lay there for the next 30 years. I'm obviously a fraud. Jesus is proving the harder of the two. You want very viable proof? There it is. Hey, fellow, why don't you rise up and walk? The dude gets up, rolls up his bed, and walks out, dancing, glorifying God as he goes. Jesus wants us to know that he has the authority to forgive sins. He takes sins very seriously. It's the most dangerous, pervasive problem we have, and he has the ability to forgive it. And uh, we really need to hear this because we live in a culture that's not willing to tell us the truth about things. Uh, Recent New York Times article entitled, What Doctors Know About How Bad It Is and Won't Say. Pretty comprehensive uh, research from a number of different schools, including one from here at Pitt. Um, And uh, this is basically the tagline, the first uh, paragraph. Uh, The supposed cornerstone of contemporary medicine is that patients should make informed decisions. That all depends on their understanding of the situation, their life expectancy, the, the probable quality of life, the pros and cons of any proposed treatment. Well, they don't know. They often don't know. A staggering number of people don't know. They found uh, in one case um, where they interviewed uh, a number of people who were undergoing chemotherapy and their cancer continued to grow. We call that dying, by the way. Um, That 40% of the patients in that situation who were interviewed had never discussed their prognosis or life expectancy with any doctor. You get that? Someone whose tumors continue to grow, they're still going through treatment, and no doctor's ever told them what their prognosis or life expectancy is. They're dying, and their doctors won't tell them. Uh, a, a professor here at Pitt said, coupled with this unwillingness to tell the truth, patients and their families have this thing called optimism bias bias we just want to believe the best case scenario and we'll run uphill against bad news in order to believe it and that's true of our spiritual condition as well no one wants to tell us how bad it is we don't want to believe how bad it is jesus is willing to tell us how bad it is that we have a sin problem that it runs really deep deep through every single one of us but then he has the cure as well well, uh, Jesus here, we see, takes sins really seriously, and we don't. And one of the most amazing things about this text and this story is uh, the, the last verse, verse 26. Um, I, I, I find this really interesting that, uh, where is it? Yeah, that when this guy goes dancing out of the house, the, the people stand there and watch, and they are amazed, and they glorify God, and they say, we've seen extraordinary things. What's missing? Anyone? Anything missing? Jesus heals a man who's never walked, but tells him his greater problem is sin. And that dude walks out and not a single blasted person says, Jesus is giving away forgiveness. I should get in line. I'm no worse. I'm no, better than, I'm no better than that guy, that's for sure. If he needs forgiveness, it's his biggest problem, then I need forgiveness. Why is there not a line out the house for Jesus who has given away forgiveness? It's because we're indifferent to our own sin. We really don't believe we have a problem. Second story, much quicker too. Um, Jesus not only has the authority to forgive, he has the audacity to do it. 
Jesus walks out of the house. A couple of days later, it seems, uh, we go from this house, turn into a hospital, to a house party. Jesus uh, runs across this guy named Levi, who's a tax collector, in verse 27, sitting in a tax booth. And basically, if you don't know what tax collectors were like, what they did, and what people thought of them, uh, it, it wasn't good. Um, these were collaborators and traders of the Roman Empire who unfairly taxed their people for a profit. And uh, they were basically lumped in with like murderers. Okay? That's the way they were treated in their society. Uh, and not only is he a tax collector, but like when Jesus finds him, that's what he's doing. Like he's a sinner doing his sinning right now at the tax booth. And uh, this is what it means that forgiveness is audacious. Let me define audacious. Boldness. Especially with confident or arrogant disregard for personal safety, conventional thought, or other restrictions. This is what it means that Jesus' willingness to forgive is audacious. He looks at this guy who's universally despised, a traitor, in the midst of doing his sending and says, Hey, I want you to follow me. You, follow me. And he does. He leaves everything. He leaves his job. He leaves his wealth. He leaves his government ties. He leaves his trade and he follows Jesus. And, and now there's time for indignation again. Here comes the controversy. What's the indignation look like? Well, I can imagine some people, if you're careful with the story, you may wonder, like, or maybe if you're the paralytic, <laughs> maybe, like, hey, quick question. Um, maybe the paralytic was a better guy than I, I'm giving him credit for. But I can imagine the paralytics, like, nearby watching this saying, like, hey, uh, quick question. Why did you point out the fact that I was a sinner in front of everyone? Like everyone. But here is this guy who like cheats and steals for a living and everyone hates. And you just call him to follow you without even pointing out his sin. Like not a nary a mention of the fact that he's a crook who's ruined hundreds and thousands of people's lives for a long time. Why, why do you even mention that, Jesus? Maybe a little indignant. Um, possibly the, the indignation of the disciples... Same region. We're in the same area. This dude has been robbing them and their family blind for a long time. They know who this guy is. They don't like him. When they thought they were following Jesus to change the world, they couldn't imagine they'd get that guy on the team. He's on the team. He's not just some distant guy. He's like one of the guys. He's one of the 12 disciples. He's, a, he's, a, he's one of the main people. I, I, wait, I'm sharing this calling with you? That guy? I hate that guy. Anyway, uh, indignant. It's possible that they're indignant as well. The real indignation, though, is left, verses 29 and 30, for these religious folks who are upset that Jesus is spending time with these sinners. That Jesus and his disciples are spending time with these sinners. Um, you know, what Jesus is doing here is not just, uh, you know, meeting for a business meeting. Uh, this, is a, this is a party Levi seems to be throwing something like a goodbye party, celebrating his last day at work. Last day on the job. Why'd you love your job? I did. But I like this guy more. Got a new job. What's your job going to be like? I'm going to follow this guy around. Okay. Um, there's a huge party. All his, invites all his friends over. And, uh, and Jesus is at the party with, with the text says, all these tax collectors and sinners. Notorious sinners. Infamous sinners. And, and Jesus is there. And I suspect he's not just hanging out on the wall, hiding in the bathroom, um, looking at his phone, trying to ignore the crowd. He's a social person. He's charismatic. People want to be with him. He's the life of the party. He really is. And um, 
These people who are watching, these religious outsiders are watching and saying, what is he doing? Doesn't he know that holy people that take God seriously, they separate themselves. They separate themselves from something. Doesn't, doesn't he know Psalm 1? You know, the very first verse of wisdom? The very first verse of wisdom in Psalm 1. You love God? You want to be wise? You, you don't sit in the, or stand or follow in the way of sinners and mockers. You, you separate yourselves from them. You don't do that. And uh, Jesus instead is right in the middle of the party. Well, Jesus answers them in verse 31. And he basically just says to them, Those who are well don't need a doctor. The sick do. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. Paraphrase version. You think I don't take sin very seriously because I'm not separating myself from sinners? Because I'm a friend of sinners? But I hang out with sinners, people like those people over there, because I take sin seriously. Those people need care. I've come to bring them a cure. That's why I'm here, to care for them. In other words, Jesus is telling them, I have the audacity to come and care for people and to forgive them, especially those people you don't like. Those people you don't like, I came for them. I've come to forgive them. I'm here for them. Now, soon, if you haven't already, you should begin to feel the tension. Do you feel any tension yet? Anybody? No, no feelings. I'm doing a poor job then. Jesus takes his sin very seriously. He tells his paralytic that he needs to be forgiven. And yet Jesus throws himself right into the middle of the notorious party full of sinners. And he seems to be altogether comfortable there. And, um, and he's come to, to, to work with them and to care for them and to cure them. Uh, are you telling me none of you ever experienced the tension as Christians of trying to take Jesus and sin very seriously while also, well, frankly, living in the party? None of you ever experienced that tension? No one? Thank you, one person, for being honest. Um, anyway, think about Levi. Okay? Think about Levi, this tax collector. This dude's got two group of friends, maybe, if the disciples actually like him. He's got one group of friends, his old friends, who are like, so you're leaving? Yeah. To hang out with those guys? Yeah. Like, those really serious-looking, nerdy theological guys? Yeah. Y'all do anything fun? Uh, well, we go around and tell people about God's love and how they need to repent. <laughs> okay. All right. Meanwhile, he's also hanging out with the disciples and Jesus. And they're asking, like, so what you guys used to do over there? And wondering, like, hey, on Friday nights when you disappear, what are you doing? Do you still extort for fun? Um, you know, what are you really like? What are you really doing? Are you living a double life? Call to take sin seriously. Supposed to love the people around you who are all sinners. There's tension. And what's typical is that we split as people into two groups of people. The people we see in our text. Those who separate and those who are split. 
let's call them the seps and the splits. It's our own little gang rivalry here. Um, the seps are the self-righteous folks who think, I'm not only I need to be apart from them to be right and good, but I'm too good to be with them. And they're the splits who are functionally living a double life. Sunday mornings, Thursday nights, Sunday night Bible study, they're one person. Friday nights, Saturday nights, they're another person. And genuinely so in some ways. Like, I really do love Jesus and God on Sunday morning, and I really do like getting drunk on Friday night. And, um, yeah, I, I want to point out how these two people, or groups of people, these gangs, rival gangs, that uh, exist in this text and in their church and in society and on this campus and in this group all the time. They're really related. They're like first cousins. They're basically your first cousins. Uh, One, both groups share indignation over somebody else's sin. You're indignant about someone else's sin. The self-righteous, man, you, you hate what those people do on Friday and Saturday nights. Can't believe they would do that. But the splits who aren't bothered by those things, nothing makes you angrier than the self righteous hypocrisy of those religious people. It makes you sick. It is terrible. Indignant over someone else's sin. Secondly, both blind and indifferent to your own sin. You don't smell your own stink. You don't really get what's wrong with what you're doing. Or if you do have the slightest inclination that there's something wrong, you you don't really go in for a second deeper diagnosis from Jesus on it. You're just going to keep doing it. And frankly, you seek out friends and company that will make it comfortable for you to continue to do that. And third, neither group, neither individual, is interested in joining Jesus on his mission to care for and cure others. Maybe you're interested, but frankly, you don't have what it takes. The the, the SEPs won't move toward people that are not like them, because they despise them. And even if they do, it won't do any good, because they don't love them. Because they're not humble enough to actually be able to talk to them in a way that doesn't come across as judgmental. And the splits, frankly, often so busy excusing your own sin and suppressing your own guilt that you you have trouble bringing yourself to Jesus, much less bringing someone else with you. And the answer the text gives us is integrity. What we want is to be one person. And this is what I really long for you all to experience in RUF. The freedom to be open and honest about what's really going on in your life. With you and with others. Completely. I'm not saying you have to. But I I just basically said that all of you are either one or the other. Maybe you're in both. The human heart's pretty complicated. Um, But this is a place where you can be open and honest because frankly you both have a sin problem and you both have a savior to forgive sins and you have one that holds out forgiveness and also one who holds out repentance the ability to turn and to draw close to Jesus and to follow him and become a wholehearted person who's uh, not marked by despising someone else's sin and hiding your own 
yeah. So let me close with a story that I'm done. Uh, when I was at JMU years ago, I was in this strange leadership thing. I don't really know how I got there or what we were supposed to be learning. I don't remember anything else about it except for this story. And uh, one, on one occasion, we played this game. And I don't remember the name of the game, but there's about 100 of us in the room, and the person facilitating the, facilitating the game said, okay, listen to me and do what I tell you. Okay, please squat down. No sitting, no standing. Please close your eyes. No peeking. These are the rules of the game. Rule number one, if I touch you, stand. Rule number two, if I touch you twice, open your eyes. Rule number three, if I touch you three times, do whatever you want. These are the rules of the game. Rule number one, if I touch you once, stand. Rule number two, if I touch you twice, open your eyes. Rule number three, if I touch you three times, do whatever you want. And this was repeated over and over as I sat there squatting. You help us the longest you've ever squatted in one place without sitting or standing. For like 10 or 15 minutes. It's very uncomfortable, right? And, uh, and, and you're curious, you don't know what's going on. You wonder if maybe like 99 people are sitting around looking at you because you're the only idiot still sitting on the floor. Um, and, and eventually they, the, the person gets around to tagging you once or twice. And three, you stand up, you look around, and you're like, all right, it's a mixed group. Some of us are standing, some of us are sitting. And eventually the game's over. Uh, before that, you know, some people um, leave the room. Some people just start talking where they are. Others stand awkwardly, not knowing what to do. Uh, when we were done, the instructor asked one question. Once you were free, why didn't you join me? Once you were free, why didn't you start doing what I was doing? Why didn't you walk around and start tagging people so they could get out? It's a good question, right? It's hard to answer. But, but I think the heart of it is because we forget in one second, because we become, in, we become indifferent in one second to the suffering we've experienced, and we don't know the freedom that we have. And Jesus to, to go and liberate others. Jesus takes our sin very seriously, enough to forgive us at the cost of his own life, enough to die for us, to forgive us and set us free. But he also calls us to follow him. And, uh, when, he, and when we do, it changes us. It changes us into the kind of people that want to tag others. The kind of people that would rip the roof off of a house to bring our friends with ourselves to Jesus because we know that we need him. We're convinced they need them too. All right. Hey, it's 10 o'clock.